Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Hi, welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next, and I am beyond thrilled here to have a colleague, friend, a global participant in the conversation of all things supply chain, Mr. Tom Raftery, uh, out, of, out of Spain here, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, sir. Hey, Richard, how are you doing? It's uh, Yeah, it is. It's afternoon here now. It's my 4 p.m., so I guess if you are East Coast, it's your 10 a.m.? That's correct. Uh, a little bit further uh, uh, west in, in the mountain kind of time frame. Close enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. We got North America, Europe, the whole thing. Uh, but yes, it's a uh, global conversations to be had. Appreciate you jumping on. It's it's and especially in Spain, man. I mean, it's it's siesta time. We're just coming out of siesta time. I literally just finished lunch. So 4 p.m. I literally just got up from the uh, from the lunch table, made a quick cup of coffee so that I could join you on the podcast. Fantastic. Well, now, uh, and again, accent kind of belays a little bit. You're not obviously Spanish. Uh, so uh, one <laughs> of the, the things... accent or was it the tan? I, I, it's, it's very confusing. People listening to <laughs> this won't, demeanor, won't, man. Won't, won't get it, but I, I'm blue-eyed, red-haired, pasty-skinned. Definitely, <laughs> definitely not okay. looking nor sounding. Yeah. No, I'm originally, originally from Ireland, originally from Cork on the south coast of Ireland. Say my twenty, your twenty-one to me is not going to have a lot of Spanish influence. I don't think, but uh, no, regardless, actually, I, I did that. It's very funny. I did that, and yeah. I am um, so. It, it, it says my DNA is ninety-nine point five percent Irish, and that can you be ninety-nine point five percent? That half, that half percent. Apparently, six generations back, there's a Spaniard in my mix. Oh my so, goodness. No idea where that came from, but apparently six generations back, I've got some Spanish DNA, and then well, I ended up living in Spain. It's 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 a bizarre coincidence. I, I've, I've been here uh, since uh, 2000. Are there really coincidences? Because this is actually leads <laughs> me to my question, because, and you had mentioned this, you're just having a cup of coffee, you just had lunch literally at probably three in the afternoon, mm-hmm. which then leads right into the one thing about Spain that I've never fully understood is how that country as a culture eats at midnight dinner. Right. And that's yeah, so yeah. normal. So how have it's you adjusted not, to that now that you live there? Uh, very easy. I mean, I, I just I just slotted in your 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 appetite <laughs> um, just runs with it once you're here a while. Right. Um, so <laughs> generally, yeah, we have lunch typically 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And then we have our evening meal around 10 p.m. And so right. uh, we finish evening meal, maybe 10.30 uh, the kids get up from the table, brush their teeth, and go straight to bed. You know, it's uh, it. Uh, you know, coming from Ireland, where I used to have my evening meal at six p.m. It it's it, you know it, it it's a little bit weird, but um, but not now, not now. It's just completely the norm. You know, I actually don't get hungry. I don't have a breakfast, so the first bite of food I have in the day is at three three thirty p.m. Jeez. And and uh, the thing that fascinates me that we're going to get into the, I guess, the substance of supply chain, but it's patterns, right? <laughs> and I say this because Spain, in the context of patterns, has this very unique eating pattern 
that is truly unique. I, I know of, and you're a global traveler, I literally know yeah. of no other country in the world that's like Spain. I don't even think Portugal's like Spain in that sense. Por- Portugal isn't, no. It is It is odd. I, I don't know why. It, I mean, you could say it has something to do with the temperature, but there are lots of other hot countries as well. And, and Portugal is sure. right next door and doesn't have the same uh, kind of tradition. I, I don't know where it comes from, but, you know, that's... That's how it is, I guess. I mean, I went uh, from here to an event in Mannheim in Germany a couple of years ago, I remember. And the they had lunch at 11.30 in the morning. And for someone who's used to having lunch at 3.30 in the afternoon, this I, I was still <laughs> digesting breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, well, yeah. fascinating, fascinating. I mean, well, anyways, it's always fun to kind of pick apart all the different things that are going on in the world. But let's 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 jam in here. I mean, everyone, you know, you are a very well-known character uh, in the world of all things supply chain. You've been an ombudsman, to say the least, for the last five, six years. You were hired, I think, at SAP to actually be a voice and hopefully a participant in the global narrative around all things supply chain. However, how did you start? Now, this is the origin story that we always like to get into. As a character today, you're not someone who is, and, and I, this is the, oh God, we're getting up to 60 episodes. We're kind of trailing your podcast by a little bit, but kind of getting out there. We're chasing you. But the long story I, I, my, short here, the supply, question is, yeah. My supply chain, um, I, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, I think the next episode of the Digital Supply Chain Podcast is going to be episode 271. Jesus, so. congratulations. <laughs> you have a, a little bit. No, of, seriously, how far does that go back? Is that six years, seven years, or five years? Three, three and a half. Oh, I Jesus. started, yeah, I started the podcast in June, July 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, I was doing a ridiculous amount of travel, as you know, we all were pre pandemic. And I was managing to push out two episodes a month. And then, of course, shutters came down on the travel in February, March uh, 2020. And I decided I needed to pivot because I wasn't going to be traveling. So I upgraded my home kit for uh, audio and video and started pushing out two episodes of that podcast a week. So I do mm-hmm. Monday and Friday, I push out a new episode of the Supply Chain Podcast. And I have a climate podcast as well, Climate 21, it's called. I push mm-hmm. out a new episode of that every Wednesday, and that's on mm-hmm. about episode number 90 at this point. So, Jesus. yeah, I'm keeping busy. Well, that's you know what? And I, I'm, I'm going to shift gears. It's like all things. These conversations, you never know where they're going to lead. But you 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 triggered me a little bit to, to ask you, as now a truly kind of experienced podcaster, mm-hmm. right? And it's a relatively new media that we're still kind of figuring out what, how to use it, where to use it, what's it actually useful for, right? Yep, yep. You, you've got a very interesting perspective. I mean, look, just for a second, let's reflect for it. You know, you look back in all those episodes and podcasting kind of as a means to, well, first, let me start with a very general question. When you started podcasting, what was the problem you were trying to solve? And <laughs> now fast forward to where we are today, yeah. Reflecting on it, how have you modified or evolved, or how would you counsel someone who's you know wanting to get into podcasting for B two B or even B two C type activities? Sure. So, I first got into podcasting back in two thousand five, two thousand six. I want to say that's when I started okay. my first podcast. It was called Pod Leaders, and it was okay. a podcast that I started to interview the kind of uh, top voices in what was known at the time as Web 2.0. Mm-hmm. 
And so I had some really, really interesting people on the podcast. I had people like Vint Cerf, who was the chief internet evangelist for Google. He's great. Um, He's fantastic. Lovely, lovely guy. And uh, Dan Brickman, who was the inventor of the spreadsheet, Mm -hmm. for example, and, you know, a a bunch more. And and so uh, I I ran that for a number of years. And then it, it kind of petered. And then I dropped out of the podcasting space and just continued working as I was doing. I was working for an industry analyst firm at the time. Uh, And then after I joined SAP in 2016, I started a podcast around IoT. And uh, because that's that's what I was brought into SAP uh, to be as an IoT evangelist initially. And then uh, through an accident of reorganization, I found myself in the supply chain organization. And I didn't know a lot about supply chain at the time. I had worked in a supply chain uh, software company back in 2002 to 2004. But that was, you know, 10, 12 12 years earlier. So I wasn't contributing a whole lot to the team I was on because I was doing a lot of keynotes running around the place. And I was a little bit concerned that if I wasn't contributing to the team, it wasn't very sustainable from a job security perspective. So I thought, what am I going to do? And then I said, well, I could start a supply chain podcast. And that way I could bring in experts onto the podcast who actually know about supply chain, give them a bit of a platform, and at the same time, learn about supply chain myself through osmosis. And I, I, I pitched this to my manager. He loved the idea. And thus was born the Digital Supply Chain Podcast. My good, well, okay. So again, I, a lot of affinity uh, overlap between us, but uh, I, I love that because I'm very much in the same mindset. Uh, the, the the conversation with, and lucky enough to really, it, you know, have a conversation with thought leaders, you know, like yourself, right? And and when you do, the creative synthesis of ideas that happens um, is truly what's kind of shaping the world narrative right now. Right. And so part of the reason I'm asking the question is I, 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 you know, podcasting, you know, there's something about the open discourse, right. That the internet and podcasting kind of enables that allows people in these various thought leader positions to really almost like media propaganda in a way. Right. I mean, it's kind of the modern, the internet enables everyone to be a propagandist, if you will. And I mean that in both positive and negative ways, right? Sure, and sure. podcasting is one of the main vehicles with which to kind of push that out there. Um, yeah. But it's still kind of new. And if you were in 0506, you're like a godfather of podcasting. Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> you must have been one of the first five podcasters ever. Uh, not not first five, because they had been around a few years before that, all right. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, I was pretty early to it. I remember the first couple of episodes I did, I recorded using a dongle hanging off a regular telephone. Oh so I was recording actual <laughs> telephone conversations. And then oh I started using then I, then I started using Skype. And there was a built-in wow. call recorder plug-in for Skype that you could get from a company called Ecamm. They're still in existence, yeah. great company, do some lovely software. So they had a, a plug-in for Skype which allowed you to record and that made my uh, call recordings significantly better in terms of quality. So that's, and that, you know, kind of developed from there. But even then, even in kind of 2006 timeframe, I was, you know, rolling my own RSS feed for the podcast. It wasn't, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. you know, it's so much easier now when you've got hosting companies like Buzzsprout, et cetera, who do it all for you. That makes it so much easier. Totally. Totally. Well, I, I, again, this is sort of an audible there, but, but, you know, as a 
now even finding out more about your podcasting history. I mean, you were at the forefront of this sort of modern, I like to call it, you know, we talk a lot about influencers in the world of consumer world, but there's something about business influencing that's a little bit different, you know, and I always make the contrast between Facebook and LinkedIn. They're both social platforms, but we act very differently on those, right? And kind of in the world of business influencing, it's not the same rules as someone like a Kim Kardashian or a Paris Hilton or whoever, right? And how they influence. Thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was going to put my, yes, but yes, thankfully, thank God, uh, a little more practical, a little more educational, but, but regardless, we're still kind of figuring out how to do all that. So, but, 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 it, you know, let me, let me go back and, and start at yep. the beginning because you're a fascinating person with a fascinating history. And we do have, like, I'm sure you do have a pretty broad spectrum of listeners from people in undergraduate programs to graduate programs to people even thinking about getting into supply chain. So what's your origin story? You know, how did you start? Where did this, this, this 99.5% Irishman uh, find his way into the world of of where you are now. Sure, yeah. So it all starts uh, because I'm a bit ADD. So <laughs> because I'm a bit ADD, I'm always interested in whatever is new and shiny. And so consequently, you know, growing up as a kid in Ireland, the thing in the late 80s that was really interesting and, and and new and happening was science. And I was very lucky in uh, my second level school education. I had a great biology teacher called Rory Murray, and he inculcated in me a great love of biology. And my dad as well was fantastic. I used to go to the countryside every uh, weekend with him. So I had this love of nature and biology. So I went to university, started studying biology, and it was great because it was always new things happening, particularly in the likes of genetics, molecular biology at that time was really cool and happening. So I got into all that. And then uh, I started into a PhD uh, in biological control, which again was very new at the time. Uh, And that was, you know, a way of controlling pests, but without using chemicals, using biological forms of control. And... uh, At the same time, because, you know, ADD, I started getting into technology and computers and I bought a computer and taught myself how to use it. And then, you know, went to the university and said, I've, you know, learned all this stuff in computing. Do you want me to teach a course to the undergrads? And they were delighted. So I did. And then I approached some local businesses and said, I'm teaching a course in computers in the university. Uh, Would any of your customers like some training in computers? And they said, yes. So I ended up setting up a computer software company uh, initially for training and then for programming. And this was kind of the mid 90s. And, you know, so much was happening there that I didn't actually get to finish the PhD because I was looking at in the lab I was in, I was looking at the postdocs who were there, people who would already got their PhDs, and they were scrounging around trying to get two and three month contracts. And I was earning more in a week with my technology stuff than they were in a month. And I said, look, (laughs) okay, I, I... it doesn't make sense for me to continue on with the, the PhD. So I jumped into technology, went into that full time, set up that software company. We did some really, really cool stuff. And then we merged into another company in 2002. This was the company that was doing the supply chain software. So I went in as CTO, brought the development team with me, and we started transitioning what they were doing. And so, you know, I, I, I chased the whole technology thing and it was always bleeding edge stuff. So like in the mm-hmm. late 90s, we created a game for mobile phones and we sold it to the local 
uh, at the time, Aircell was the local mobile phone provider in Ireland. We sold it hmm. to them. And it was, you know, I mean, late 90s, mobile phone games was unheard of. And this was really, yeah. really early stuff. It was on one of those, uh, the, the kind of banana phone that they had in the Matrix movie, the one, <laughs> the Nokia one, which, the, the, you know, the thing, <laughs> right, right. The button, thing came down. So, uh, and then uh, I went in as CTO, stayed there for two years, dropped out in 2004 to start up a social media consultancy. So again, you can see... Hmm. Social media consultancy, yep. 2004, really early. So very ADD, yep. always looking for what's, you know, flashy and interesting and happening and what's new. Uh, so ran the social media consultancy from 2004 to 2008. And at the same time, 2006, I, I, myself and two friends co-founded a data center and we made it a hyper energy efficient data center. And we open sourced the development of it because I had the whole social media thing. We open sourced it using blogs and Flickr and video and all that kind of stuff. And so that got me a name very much in the green energy space. And so then in uh, 2008, I came here to Spain, moved here to Spain for personal rather than professional reasons. So I was looking for a job at the time, which would allow me to work remotely through English because I didn't speak Spanish. And so... uh, I, I I went to social media. And what I mean by that is I went to LinkedIn. And at the time, mm-hmm. uh, this was early 2008, I had a four or 500, no, I had more than 500, about 550 contacts in LinkedIn. Because I was very early into LinkedIn. And I cherry picked about 80 of those and sent them a, a, a mail from within LinkedIn. At the time, you could do that. Uh, very easily right. to a big bunch of people. <clears throat> so I sent a mail to them saying, as you know, I'm moving to Spain next month. No, most of them had no idea I was moving to Spain next month. But uh, the, the 80 I picked were very, very high level. And they were people mm-hmm. who I had on the podcast. So they were very senior with fabulous oh. connections, like Dan Bricklin, you know, and and um, uh, Vince Cerf and, and, you know, a whole bunch of those. And I said, as you know, I'm moving to Spain next month. I don't have anything lined up. What would be really, really useful would be if you would leave a recommendation for me on my LinkedIn profile. That was the ask. (laughs) So I got 25 phenomenal recommendations from these really senior people. And I got four job offers out of it as well. Wow. Directly from that. And I actually went with a fifth one afterwards. But... (laughs) (laughs) with Redmonk to become an industry analyst. And I, I led Redmonk's arm that was looking into energy and sustainability and we termed it Greenmonk. And I led that then for seven years. So and there's a common thread here, clearly. And that's one of not only seeing kind of where patterns and kind of system level thinking, kind of seeing where things are kind of headed or connecting the dots, as people like to say. Yeah. But there's a clear education evangelist type function yeah. from even coming out of school, it sounds like, with PhD, converting into educating people about computers to turning that into work. I mean, you've always kind of been kind of heralding, if you will, kind yeah, of what's yeah. coming on the technology horizon. Is that is that fair? Yeah, it is. I mean, even within SAP, I termed myself a futurist because while mm-hmm. what I was doing very much was I was looking and saying, okay, in, in this particular area, let's say automotive, for example, okay, in automotive, this is where it was five years ago, 10 years ago. This is where it is today. So therefore, in five, 10 years time, it's going to be over there doing this. 
And so, you know, I, I'm always drawing those kind of trend lines, looking at what was, what is, and therefore what will be. And, you right. know, I like, I like seeing those patterns, seeing where things are going, and then telling people that they're going there and why. So a lot of what I was doing as an evangelist in SAP was I was, you know, I was drawing these conclusions, writing these up, doing presentations for, for our customers, for SAP's customers, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the partner organization as well. So I'd be talking to lots of the leadership teams of partners uh, and for internal um, as well. So talking to teams within SAP, a, a lot of them mm-hmm. would be product development teams. And I'd be telling them, well, look, in this kind of in this kind of uh, sector or in this kind of um, market, this is where things are headed to. So you need to be aware of that for the products you're developing for the next five years. So on that, because you bring up Vince Cerf, I've had the pleasure of meeting him. I've never had him on a podcast, but I chatted with him more at the Nanon kind of thing, sort of his 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 uh, you know kind of core, obviously you know TCP/IP kind of protocols, building up the internet, mm-hmm. whatever, and just I, I, he's just such a fabulous person, but, but you make me think when you start thinking about this futurist stuff is, is that, you know, the one that comes to mind is, is Kurt's file, right? Kurt's file. Right. I think he's at Google too. You must've crossed paths with him at some point because he's got all the books out there and whatnot. That's right. And I've read a bunch of his books, but I actually haven't, I haven't met him. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I've come across all his stuff. I've read his books, but I've never met the man. No, I I would love to. Okay. Yeah, well, I was going to say you're you're right there. You're 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 extolling the same things that he you know is is very famous for. You're right there too. But I mean, it's just yeah. kind of seeing where the puck's headed in the next ten years. You know, not many people are doing that. Well, I tend to look at a like five to ten year horizon, uh, which is very straightforward, very easy to do. Uh, yep. He tends to look at like a twenty to thirty year horizon, which is a whole nother skill set entirely, and the, the kind of stuff he comes out with kind of blows your mind but then you, right. you look back at some of the stuff that he was saying 20 30 years ago and you've seen a lot of it come to pass and you go yep. wow <laughs> you know his yep. track record yeah well yeah, you know this this i mean again i immediately start thinking about the foundation series and harry selden and you know uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you haven't watched it on apple i mean read it it's one of the best sci-fi books ever it's but great. the whole concept of regression analysis is predictive future capabilities right i mean that's Amazing. that's, that's yeah. the heart of it Right. Yeah. So, okay. So, so clearly, and again, you're, you're out there, but then you moved into supply chain at SAP, as you just talked about. Right. And, yep. and, and that's how, I mean, again, I'm looking at the trends here, the, 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 whatever you want to call these mega trends, right. You're kind of coming out of school. And by the way, you and I are very close to the same age. So I, I feel an affinity. I mean, I remember programming on my Apple IIc in the late, <laughs> you know, mid eighties. Right. And it, yeah, it was yeah. exciting to be able to make the thing go across the screen. Right. Like you did your <laughs> little 10 step functions, your line functions. Um, and then I remember the first instant message, you know, in my computer room at school and undergraduate in, 91. And I thought that was like, oh my God, like this is a big deal. But you've been, you got, you jumped into technology because that was a big deal. And then within technology, you found yourself in data centers, which is also kind of a big deal. And I know a little bit about that as well. And then you kind of moved in, you know, then you segued into supply chain. Again, all of these are massive megatrends that, you know, really were giant tidal waves of activity. Right. So I want to, I want to focus a little bit more on the supply chain side of it. Like as you kind of drew into it and your timing was, was, you know, again, oddly on point right yeah 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 right you know but now kind of where you're sitting where you are now looking back on the last six or seven years you know what are your thoughts on i mean a couple things one why is supply chain now all of a sudden digitizing and then what does it mean to digitize the supply chain because those are very 
basic, basic questions that mm. are still kind of being formed, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very true. It's it's funny how supply chain has changed so much in just the last three years. I remember, you know, being at events, supply chain events, uh, 2018, 2019, you know, with SAP colleagues and one one guy in particular, Hans Talbar, who's now at Google, I remember him giving talks about supply chain disruption and uh, supply chain resilience and really, really interesting talks. And he was talking about how supply chains are being disrupted more often. You know, and this was like in December 2019. And, you know, we had no idea what was coming around the corner uh, or maybe it was November. But anyway, it was whatever. Yeah, supply chains at that time were optimized for efficiency. So they were made extremely lean, which of course meant they were extremely brittle. Mm -hmm. uh, they were seen as cost centers. So uh, everything was, was you know, as optimized out, made as absolutely lean as possible. So it was almost like a perfect storm when COVID hit um, and you saw lots of supply chains keel over. And, you know, this has become the forcing factor for digitization, one of the main ones. I mean, everyone was talking about digitizing supply chain before then and how mm -hmm. important it was, but there was no burning platform. Right. Suddenly, COVID came along and everyone was like, oh, wow, we really need to do this because if we don't, you know, our competitors are going to do it and they're going to, you know, outcompete us. They're, they, they'll know mm -hmm. where their stuff is and when it's arriving and we won't have a clue. So a lot of it is around that. It's around now supply chain changing from having been seen as a cost center to now being seen as a strategic advantage. And I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a shame it took something like COVID for people to wake up and realize that because the, it, a lot of companies knew of this or should have known of this already. I mean, the classic example is Tim mm -hmm. Cook and what mm -hmm. he did with Steve Jobs in Apple, right. you know, right. you know, before he was CEO, he he mm -hmm. made their supply chain the best supply chain in the world, arguably, and he brought Apple back from relative obscurity to being mm -hmm. one of the most efficient supply chain companies in the world, and mm -hmm. you know that that was down to Tim, and it's how he then became subsequently the CEO after Steve uh, resigned and then subsequently died. So mm -hmm. supply chain has always been incredibly important, but it wasn't recognized very much, not widely enough as, as so. And going forward, it is going to be because we're, we're heading into more and more disruption. I mean, we've got mm -hmm. the, the, the war right now in Ukraine with Russia invading, but we also have climate change and that's mm -hmm. not going away anytime soon. And that's going to require the fight against climate change is going to require enormous systemic changes globally. Mm -hmm. And the, I mean, if you just look at what our climate has been like, the last eight years have been the hottest eight years on record, mm -hmm. which means highly likely the next eight years are going to be 
the hottest eight years on record as the temperature goes up and up and up and up year on year on year on year. And so, you know, you'll get to 2032, 10 years from now, and you look back on the summer of 2022 as kind of calm and balmy. And we saw the kind of wildfires and droughts and floods and famine that have come as a result of the uh, the, the crazy hot weather we had during summer 2022. I mean, you've got massive starvation on the eastern horn of Africa. You've, we've had floods uh, in pretty much everywhere, actually. There was huge floods in China, massive floods in Pakistan, you know, et cetera, and, and so on and so on and so on. And like I said, in 10 years' time, this will have been a balmy year, you know, because it'll be that much hotter. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those kind of disruptions are just going to continue. The pandemic, pandemics were always predicted to be likelier in hotter weather. And as we approach more into nature as well. So again, you had a, a perfect storm there. Uh, the, the, the increase in temperatures and the encroachment into, and globalization with lots of travel, and the encroachment into uh, nature and biodiversity led, meant that the pandemic just went crazy and it's not going to be the last one. So yeah, we need to have more agile and resilient supply chains. We need to be able to see where everything is, to be able to look ahead, to be using AI to look ahead and see what are likely disruptors so that we can, you know, do a kind of what if analysis on different scenarios and then choose your best scenario based on that. So mm -hmm. we'll see AI machine learning play a huge part as we continue down this road in, in supply chain. It's going to be a massive, massive predictor and differentiator for organizations again. Hundred percent, and 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 again, I think there's so much in there to unpack. But let me let me kind of tighten in on a couple of things because again, I think we flew over this. But you were thinking about sustainability and environmental kind of best practices, if I heard correctly, back in like the 2010s, 2011s, right, or 20, you know, kind of mid even before 2000. Yeah, okay, so mid, like early earlier. Now it's always been around. I mean, environmental has been around a time, but again, you're kind of ahead of the pack. And then you kind of segue into supply chain. And now you're bringing this, these two massive things kind of are colliding together, right? Yeah. The global system that we live in today of now 8 billion people, a hundred trillion dollar GDP as measured by GDP, global economy, right? A mm hundred -hmm. billion tons of stuff that we yanked out of the ground, split roughly 51, 49 between biomass and materials, virgin materials, right? Yep. And you know, let's let's face it. At a billion, we're we're adding a hundred million net new souls per year because you got about a roughly, on average, one hundred fifty-five million people pass away, or one hundred fifty-five million people born. You know, fifty-five million people kind of pass away every year. I mean, again, all this data is there, right? Like you do the yeah. regression analysis, you can see this, and you can draw this stuff out five, ten, fifty years. But the convergence of supply chain and environmental best practices, and I'm kind of going to lead the witness here a little bit kind of leads to, I believe, circularity, because of course you and I have engaged in this publicly in the world of LinkedIn, yep. but that's also seemingly like supply chain's big, digitization of supply chain, transparency, and all the things that you're talking about are going to lead us to the inescapable conclusion, which is we waste too much stuff as is. We have way too much stuff we've already, you know, that's sitting out there that we can use, reuse, remake, refashion, you know, redo and other things. But that seems to me also kind of colliding right now, circularity and supply chain digitization. 
what, what how you view it? Cause you're the future. How do you see that kind of playing out in the, you know, over the course of the decade here? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it, it's, I mean, it's a no brainer that we need to go completely right. circular. I mean, that's just, right. you know, um, we, we live in a resource constrained world with, as you said, 8 billion people, we would need two and a half of our current planets to support the current lifestyle and way of uh, extracting that we have. But there are, there, there, we have more than enough on the planet to sustain us if we use it wisely. Totally. You know, yeah. so the issue is we've been doing the uh, take make waste model where, you know, we dig it out of the ground, we make something with it and then we throw it away. And that's just crazy. So like like I said, that's not sustainable in, in the traditional sense of sustainable, not sustainability. But so what we need to do and what is starting what we're starting to see happen in in one or two industries, but it, it has to become widespread, is that we digitize the manufacture of everything and such that we know every single component of everything that's manufactured and what that component itself has been made of. So bills of materials for absolutely everything, unique mm -hmm. identifiers for everything, so that those bills of materials can follow those parts through their life, right through to end of life. And so you can get to disassembly and see you have all these individual parts, and then you can break out all those individual parts, what they were individually made of, and then you can direct them back into reuse or recycling, preferably reuse, if not recycling. And then when you go to recycle them, you know exactly what it is they're made of and what can be, uh, what can be made from them. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not challenging. Well, it's not technically difficult to do. That's right. straightforward enough to do. It's just, we need right. to do it, need to roll up our sleeves and actually do it. It is starting to happen. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of an organization called Catena X. Um, you, some of your listeners might not have. So Catena X is a an organization which... That's with a K, right? Catena? No, with a C. C -A -T -E it is Catena. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Yep. Dash, mm -hmm. dash X. And so it's an organization of most of the large automotive manufacturers and their major suppliers. Hmm. And they're coming together to build this platform where they do exactly that. They digitize everything and they have a common hmm. standard so they can all talk to each other. And they're very hmm. careful not to share competitive stuff. And they can, you know, they can say exactly uh, who gets to see what, but everything is digitized and they're using common standards, common agreed standards to do it so that they can uh, digitize everything right, right the way through all the bills of manufacturing, right the way through, such that at end of life everything can be taken apart and reused. Now, here's a radical thing. As you're going through that, I'm going to bring Vince Surf into what you just talked about. Cool. Um, meaning, as I look at this, and I had not heard of that, uh, and, and looking at this right now, C A T E N A uh, hyphen X, right? Uh, yep. th that 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 absolutely is the open source network development of the supply chain. And yep. where I'm headed with this is, because you talked about individual assets having individual IDs being trackable. This is the digital twinning of the whole thing, right? Yep. Well, there's something that I think is analogous. 
and I'm going to go to Vint here, which is the formation and creation of the internet pathways and routing structure is an open source network that is moving packets. It could be analogous to assets yep. that is moved around that network. And it's a coalition of collaboration across enterprises, but it's still kind of managed in an open way. And as I sit there and look at Katana, I'm like, holy shit, that's just a nano group yeah. right there. Fair. Right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I'm kind of wondering because you and I share similar backgrounds. I'm like, you you build the very basic structures of the of the internet. You remember that, which led you to data centers. And I, I also did the same thing. But there's lessons to be learned in that network, those network principles and development and standards and protocols that could be applied to the development of the digitized because the supply chain is just one giant ass network. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, we're moving these assets through it. And, 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 but you, you, not one person can do it. Right. I mean, this is where historically no, individual companies thought ecosystem. they had their own supply chains. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It's, it's, it is inexorably intertwined. Right. The, the yeah. supply chain is one supply chain. You're a piece of it. Um, but that's also a new concept, I think, that people are still kind of digesting. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, you can use the term Gaia if you want to to refer to the the global supply chain, which is you know we're, sure. we're all to your point we we are all inexorably part of it. We can't escape it. We're all part of it, and it is still horribly to a large extent analog. Uh, but yeah. you know, again to your point, we can TCP/IP it. We can completely yeah. digitize it and have every single component of it be trackable and traced, so that we know. Right where it comes from, where it's going to, where it's been. And then, you know, for, for things like cars, it's important to know come end of life, uh, well, not even come end of life, come time of sale of a car, uh, you know, we, we want to be able to see how it has been driven. We want to be able to see, has it been involved in any accidents? You know, all sure. that kind of history, which isn't tracked today, well, maybe by insurance companies, but that's not always available. Uh, depends on the market you're in as well. But if if that's if that's all digital and on a blockchain somewhere mm -hmm. that can be just you know and it's auto auto written by the card to the blockchain, uh, mm -hmm. then it's all fully available and you know it it it's not that someone would go along and try and scan every entry there. You would just get you know mm -hmm. kind of green amber red indicators for mm -hmm. whether this car is in good shape or not. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Well, uh, I was going to say, as you're showing it, I use this a lot. Uh, Carfax is in the U.S. is a company that does right. all the historic kind of uh, that's their whole raison d'etre is to oh, okay. be the, the, the operational history of the car. I don't think we have that here in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, so I use that. I've used that analogy to say we're building a Carfax Carfax like record for all assets. Right. Yes. Um, Perfect. That's Perfect. what we need to be able to digest. And then also. There's a whole point in procurement, and I think you also touched on this, which is procurement has always been about cost, right? I mean, of course, right? But as a strategic initiative, procurement now has to rethink through how am I, not only am I procuring this thing, but how am I disassembling this at the end of my useful life yeah. and also monetizing that disassembly and resale back into the circular economy? That's, that's brand, that is whiteboard material right now for procurement teams. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, the, the other thing procurement has to be aware of is not just price and disassembly, but also uh, security of supply. So if you are totally. a chief procurement officer, you have to make sure that you're not ordering something that might not actually come when it's when you when when you've contracted for it to come. So, yep. you know, that that's part of procurement as well, which isn't often talked about, I think, 
It's that you right. need to make sure that the organization you're procuring for has the stuff they need to make whatever it is they're making. Which then brings back the circular notion because there's enough material sitting out there. I mean, where are the constraints typically associated with our linear supply chain? It's with you know, natural disasters in, you know, resources that we're yanking out of the ground, floods, whatever, right? Hurricanes. I mean, I remember when there was a chip shortage in Thailand because you had a bunch of floods in Bangkok, for, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it was, um, you know, all the, the world chip shortage happened, right? You had spikes, yeah, and blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Well, hell, we got all this material sitting out there to the point. I mean, there's, there's close to a thousand billion tons, one gigaton of excess long-term construction materials sitting there waiting to be reused. Yep. that we haven't tapped into. Um, you know, so this is circularity all of a sudden becomes a strategic means to de-risk your supply chain. Yeah, I was talking to a woman called Magali Anderson uh, recently. Mm -hmm. She's the chief sustainability officer for a company called Holcim. Uh, if you haven't heard of Holcim, they are the largest cement and concrete manufacturer outside of China. And okay. what one of the things they're doing in Switzerland, which is where they're headquartered, uh, and it's one of the only countries where they're today allowed to do this, but they're working with governments and um, the, the likes of the EU to make it legal to do it in other countries as well. But what they're doing is they're taking uh, material from demolished buildings and mm -hmm. using it to create concrete, fresh concrete. And so they're building buildings from demolished buildings. And, you know, that's just one of the ways they, they've managed to reduce their carbon footprint 28% in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And they're working mm -hmm. hard on getting the other 72% out. That, that was one of the episodes I had recently on my Climate 21 podcast. It was a really, yeah. really interesting one if people want to check it out. Well, and, and I think you also touched on it. I've not heard of that company. I appreciate you bringing that up. But again, this is why we have these conversations, right? This is people listening in, can go dive in, find out this information. But, you know, I, and I think you quit where credit is due. The cement industry, of all things, is one of the most forward-leaning, circular, environmentally conscious industries out there. And I'm, I'm pretty sure most people don't even realize that. that they've made more advances how to reuse materials than I think most other industries that I'm aware of. I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely the gold standard in that sense. They're pretty good, yeah. They are, they are. And one of yeah. the one of the really cool initiatives that they have in this wholesome one that Magali was telling me about is they are working with their customers to sell them less concrete. So, huh. someone comes to them and says, "We're putting in this floor in this new building, and we want a hundred thousand uh, cubic meters of concrete." They'll say, "We'll sell you thirty instead of a hundred, and." We will work with you to design your floor so that it is equally strong and safe, but with 70% reduction in the amount of concrete you need, and therefore 70% savings in terms of your carbon footprint, but you get the same floor with the same strength uh, and the same safety standards as you would have had you done it with your full 100,000. And so Which we're working with them that way to 70% reduction in the amount of concrete, and equal, equally in terms of uh, structural, um, structural rigidity, structural safety, et cetera. And they can then, because they're giving them not just the concrete, but the smarts around the design, they can, they're, so they're selling IP as well as concrete. So it's, I, on, the, on the podcast, I call it smart concrete. That they're not yeah. branding it as that, I'm sure, but you know, it's so they're they're they're, they're not brand. selling as much concrete, but they're selling IP as well as concrete. 
but they're making well first and whereas you, you again opened up this 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 entire line of thinking here but there's a lot of innovation in product design that we're just at the at the very beginning of, right? Because you think about that, this is a product design all of a sudden question, right? Like I have to start thinking about the entire life cycle in how I design this thing, not just sourcing it, assembling it. It's the IKEA. I can, I can, IKEA does a great job of telling me how to build the thing, but I don't have disassembly instructions. And they have to start thinking about that now, right? Because IKEA is buying everything back to reuse it, right? So how do I reverse logistics this thing in a paint-by-numbers model the same way I do? Whether or not you can build them or not, it's a whole separate question. I can get into that one. That's that's, <laughs> that's supposed to be easy, but God damn it, you need a PhD in engineering to build some of those things sometimes, right? Um, um, but it, it's always it, that one it, screw it, left over at the end. Oh God, there's, and that just makes you like, oh, why is that one screw there? And then you're like waiting for this thing to fall apart. Right. Um, so, but you, you know, again, you kind of, you know, you bring up this whole, like there's this confluence of things that are happening here. There's a lot of innovation and in just even the beginning of product sourcing and design, right. You're entering or we're, we're incorporating elements. And I think again, you know, I, I was, Another story of my side, but I was with uh, at a conference and I was sitting with the head of uh, or one of the heads of supply chain at Goodyear Tire. And I did not realize because I'm like rubber. How is that not, you know, just recycled all the time? But I didn't realize what they explained was it wasn't the rubber. They can recycle that all day long. But in the construction of the tires, they reinforce that rubber with what I didn't understand. It was metal, almost like rebar in a way. Right. Steel bands. And it's exactly it's the disassembly of that that causes them all the challenges. And I'm like, oh my God, just like you. I'm like, well, then the problem you're trying to solve is how do I how do I assemble a tire that has the same properties and reliability and rollability or whatever the hell you measure it with, right? Um, but also assemble it in a way with a material that allows me to disassemble and recycle it, right? Yep. I mean, and then that's that's literally what their innovation labs are working on right now. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. There's the, uh, the, I mean, we're seeing as well the whole encroachment of 3D printing and that as well. I mean, that, that I think it was Airbus. Yeah, it was Airbus. Airbus was the first airline which in 2015 flew a commercial airliner which was which which contained a 3D printed part. And oh shit. Yeah, yeah. It's as recent as that. Uh wow. and and do you know the, what part by chance? I'm just sort of curious. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I mean, you know, there's the turbine. It's like holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> it's a 3D it, printed. It, it, it's probably something in the in the cabin or something like that. I I don't. Okay. I can't remember. Yeah. But the yeah. the the cool thing about the 3D printed parts is they use something like 50 percent less material and weigh about. I don't know, 10% of what the the original part would have weighed. And of course, for every kilo of weight that you save in a plane, you save something like 25,000 tons of CO2 over the lifetime of the plane. Right. Yep. So it makes huge, huge sense to start doing 3D printing of as much, not just uh, parts for planes, but parts for anything because you're using less material and less weight, which, you know, in anything that moves will require therefore less energy. And you can still get the same structural rigidity and safety, but if you can design it better to be uh, to to weigh less, uh, mm-hmm. it'll mean less energy to move it. Which again will you know if it's something like an EV, you'll increase the range of the vehicle. Right. So again, great minds think alike. It's like you're reading my mind because I did want to slip in a 3D printing question. So you you you. <laughs> you, you, you <laughs> and but the context of it is 
And again, going to your kind of futurist five to seven year view, you know, 3D printing is clearly on the horizon. It is, it will disrupt supply chain practices because you're now all of a sudden able to build things, manufacture things in a way that we've never even seen before, right? What other things do you see kind of, I mean, you know, there's the obvious stuff of digitization and what it's leading to. I mean, I kind of view Katana as, a, as also a forecasting of these shared platforms and assembly of the world supply chain as one cohesive supply chain, much like the internet has been built. Like that's, but that's kind of what we're doing. But on the horizon, are there any other kind of things? I mean, 3D printing is an obvious one, but but have you seen in your conversations or travels anything else that you see out there that is as disruptive or you know it will happen for sure, like 3D printing? <clears throat> yeah, I I think the big thing that is happening and will just increase in in terms of its effect is AI. And I, I know I've mentioned it already, yeah. AI and ML. Uh, the changes that you'll start to see happen as we digitize more things and then can run them through AI, they'll just be, you know, mind-blowing in terms of what we'll be able to achieve. I mentioned earlier the ability of, you know, doing what-if analyses on various different scenarios. You know, I, I think we will have... Uh, I know we have dashboards already, but I think you will have, you know, digital twins of your supply yep. chains. And yep. then you can run real time what if scenarios on your your digital twin and then, you know, choose your best options out of that. Because, and, mm -hmm. you know, that'll be within, with a proper graphical interface. So, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it'll be easy to use. You won't have to be a programmer to, be, to, to have to be able to use it. It'll be the likes of the supply chain managers. And so it'll it'll take a huge amount of the guesswork out of decision making, and so mm -hmm. supply chains, as a consequence, will become far far more resilient and able to adapt to very quickly changing situations. It's a combination of uh, not just the AI and the MLs, but also access to data. Because right. uh, I mentioned I was brought into uh, SAP in 2016 as an IoT evangelist, but everything is going to be digitized, everything will yep. have that unique ID and will right. have, it'll be broadcasting its location. And so everything, you'll be able to know where everything in your supply chain is at any point in time. And so, so that's too much information for a supply chain manager. So you will need that AI right. to be monitoring everything that's happening in your supply chain. I mean, we're talking ridiculous amounts of information. If you think yep. of a temperature sensor in, in a cold room, the temperature sensor is constantly going, it's minus two, it's minus two, it's minus two, it's, you know, and it does that all day, every day. Someone opens the door, mm -hmm. it's minus one, it's zero, it's minus one, mm -hmm. it's minus two. Mm -hmm. It's minus, and that just goes on and on and on until something happens, and then mm -hmm. it goes. It's it's minus one. It's zero. It's one. It's right. two, and when it hits the threshold, boom, sends an alert, and it's those alerts, those thresholds that you know we need to be alerted to. So mm -hmm. we don't need all that. It's minus two. It's minus two. You know, we don't need that. What we do need is to be actively alerted that something's wrong over here. Mm -hmm. Maybe go and take a look at that. 
And that, you know, that's when, you know, something's gone above or below a particular threshold. And it's, it's AI will help us sift through all that information and look for not just those single data points, but patterns. Because yep. again, it, sure, it, it's easy. Someone opens the door and the temperature raises it. But what if the temperature changes every Monday morning at, you know, three o'clock in the morning? Right. Suddenly you kind of go, What's that about? And would you notice it? Would you have noticed it if it's just every Monday morning? But an AI can find that very quickly, you know, because it's looking for patterns that you mightn't see because you've got this huge, huge mountain of data, you know, that you're never going to look through. So this is where the likes of AI steps in and goes, ah, I've seen something weird over here. Maybe you should take a look at that. Right. And I think to your point, there's already reams and reams of data, so much more so that you could not even process it. But through the digitization, through your history of IoT, through the connected tissue of all the assets coming online for that digital twinning of the full supply chain, we haven't even witnessed the amount of data that's about to come at us, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a torrid flow of data and only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, we got a few, you know, everything. I, I, I always knew this was going to happen, but, but you know, I got to be conscious of time here a little bit and we can keep going for hours. I also want to, you know, right now, you're very visible, you're out there, um, but you also embarked on a new part of your career. And I don't know if, you know, you're talking, I mean, it's obvious on your LinkedIn, but, you know, kind of what's going on with you. You know, you you are at this position, a very interesting, you know, point, right? I mean, you're still very much involved in supply chain, clearly environmentalist and circularity is a big deal for you. But, you know, anything to talk about kind of what's coming up for you in 2023? Yeah, so... I took a step back from SAP. I was a global VP there for six years. And I I may not have timed it well, considering all the layoffs <laughs> that have happened in the tech industry in the last couple of weeks. But uh, yeah. I wanted to take a break and just step back and look around and see what's available and try a new challenge. And so yep. uh, I'm talking to a number of companies at the moment. Uh, this is November we're coming into Christmas. Yeah. There's nothing going to happen until like January, February at the earliest next year. So I've, mm-hmm. I've got a while and I'm not in any rush. Uh, I've, I, and I'm playing with the, doing the podcasts the whole time and doing a bit of uh, mm-hmm. consultancy work here and there as well for people uh, and doing a couple of talks here and there. So I'm fine. I'm good. But I am, I am looking around to see where the next challenge can be. So, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I had this as kind of a lead in on the supply chain podcast for a couple of weeks there saying, I'm talking to a number of companies, but there's nothing signed yet. So if anyone else wants to right. get in touch, <laughs> you know, f- feel free that the, the window's still open for another while. So if anyone else does want to get in touch, you know, give me, give me a shout and we'll have a chat. Well, let me, let me flip that around though, Tom, because there's also, you know, you, you have spent your career looking at patterns, looking at things and, and, you know, whether you like it or not, you've been fortunate enough to be at some of the biggest tidal waves you know, in the last 20, 30 years, right? Through through technology, through data centers, through IoT, you know, uh, sustainability, environmental, supply chain now. In a way, how are you, what, what would you want to see done in the next five to seven years? How would you look at 2030 and look back over these last eight years and go, yep, Tom Raff, or after he did what he was supposed to do, accomplish what he needed to do. You know, if you if you had kind of your, like I was able to get out and foment a narrative around, I don't know, digital twinning or something. You know what I mean? Or, or whatever. I mean, how, do, yeah. you, do you even think in those terms? Because I, I feel like yeah, you yeah. could do that almost. Yeah, no, I do. So 
2030 is a good year to choose. It's seven years yep. from now. Um, the, the reason I say it's a particularly good year is because there have been several really ambitious goals set around 2030, whether it's the UN Sustainability Development Goals, mm -hmm. uh, whether it is the EU's 55% uh, emissions reduction by 2030, uh, mm -hmm. whether it is China's 2030 development goals, whether it's even the Biden administration's 2030 goals. Um, I know Biden isn't going to be in uh, a president in 2030, <laughs> but, you know, they, they have set goals for 2030, particularly right. around climate. They have said they want uh, to have a 52% reduction in emissions by, by 2030, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Now, that's against the mm -hmm. 2005 baseline, so not not as ambitious as the EU target, which is 55% against the 1990 baseline. But still, I mean, mm -hmm. it speaks to a direction of travel. The, yep. th those numbers without context are meaningless. So to try yes. and put a bit of context around them, the 55% reduction in the EU uh, by 2030, well, we've already gotten it down 24% out of that 55 uh, just over the last couple of decades. So that means mm -hmm. there's 31% to get out in the next seven years. Now, mm -hmm. in 2020, with the lockdowns, we dropped 7% in one year, which is, yep. you know, phenomenal. But then in 2021, yep. as things opened up, we went back up 5%. So we, between 2020 and 2021, we had a net reduction of 2%. Mm -hmm. In the next seven years, we've got to get down 31%. Mm-hmm. The scale of the changes that are going to be required to hit those, and they're not actually goals. They're, this is legally binding on all 27 nations of the EU. So yep. this, this, is, this has to happen. So the, yep. the scale of the changes that are going to be required to meet those goals in the next seven years is beyond most people's comprehension. And so that is something that I am keen to be involved in, uh, either with organizations, you know, with, with companies, helping companies reduce their emissions, or I don't know, uh, with countries maybe, I don't know, we'll see. Uh, but it, 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 for me, that is going to be... Could you try again? Sorry, my Siri is jumping in there. Yeah, that's okay. We're, we're, I don't know. The, I, yeah, it's, it's, we're hitting the time, so I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. For me... That is going to be the biggest thing that happens globally in the next seven years. And, and seven years, first of all, it's, it's a short time frame, but it's not going to stop in 2030 because right. that 55% is going to be the low-hanging fruit, which means Correct. 2030 to 2040 and 2040 to 2050, we're going to have to work even harder again to get the other 45% out of the system. So the, what, what, it's going to, what it's going to mean is that businesses and countries and cities and et cetera, et cetera. But businesses are going to have to look at every single decision and view it through not just a financial uh, perspective, but also a climate perspective. You know, they'll, they'll have to have those lenses for looking at every single decision. So the, the global economy is going to become the climate economy because everything will have to be weighed both on its financial and its climate implications. It's got to be enormous. It's a great way to put changes. it. The climate economy. I think I think it's a great way to put it. You 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 must know the people at the Circle Economy Group, right? Are the Netherlands yep. there? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mark DeWitt, Martine, I think is the CEO over there or whatever. I mean, that's the, they're, they're the ones publishing the data that needs to be digitized and all that sort of thing. Anyway, I, like I said, I, I got to stop us there because we're at an hour. Um, I promise to you, I'm sure you've got a busy schedule. We literally will be doing more of this, I swear, because this is a conversation that just is ongoing. You are in the middle of it. It's exciting to watch what you're doing. So, you know, it's just been a treat to have you here. Um, wonderful conversation. And, 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 you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be fun to kind of track where you're headed next in 2023 as well. Thanks, Richard. Thanks so much for inviting me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at requis.com.